We have been moving through the Sermon on the Mount. And um, we've been going at this for three chapters now. And uh, we're almost at the end. And here we have in these two verses, in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus makes a command. He says, enter through the narrow gate. That is what we're going to be dealing with. The narrow gate and the wide gate. The broad way and the narrow way. The few and the many. And those who are hated for life and those who are hated for destruction. So let's, let me pray before we get started. Father, we thank you that you've allowed us together and as we do every Sunday, Lord, uh, gather and listen to your word and sing songs and pray, uh, lift up our voices to you and you instruct us out of your word. And right now, Lord, uh, that's what uh, I ask, Lord, that you would instruct us all, Lord, the meaning of these passages, Lord. As our Lord spoke them in that day, on that day, on the mountain, Lord, open our hearts to understanding of it so that we have the truth and enable us, empower us to obey, Lord. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Let me read the passages. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Now, this is Jesus speaking. He says, and I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. The children's ministry did a great job of explaining that. I mean... I could really sit down because they did an excellent job of that. But I won't because I did prepare to proclaim <laughs> the message. So, enter through the narrow gate. Jesus is commanding here, enter through the narrow gate. And in the Greek language, the word enter here is an imperative. It's a command. It's not an option. He's not telling us to think about entering or contemplating entering. He's, telling us, he's commanding us to enter. 
And he's been moving to this point throughout the sermon, starting from chapter 5. And the whole sermon leads to this choice. And the whole sermon is a contrast between religion that is true and religion that is false, between trust in God and trust in man, between God's righteousness and human righteousness. Only two choices. And Jesus did a marvelous job of just breaking this down into two choices only. When we think about uh, the many religions in the world, we think of a number of them. But Jesus made it simple for us. It is what God does and what man does. What God accomplishes through Christ and what man seems to, tries to accomplish through human works. And that's what we have. And of course, Jesus moving through the sermon, we see this in the false religion of Judaism. The Jews, the religious leaders, scribes and Pharisees. And that is what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He's been uncovering the false religion of the scribes and Pharisees. They were the guardians of Judaism. They believed that they were the guardians of the Old Testament. So um, they gave instructions. But what Jesus do is doing here, he is showing where what they've been saying, it is false. And we see this if we look at Luke chapter 18. If you turn to that for a minute. Luke 18. We see this with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I want to read it because it's worth looking at. It will help us to understand what's going on. Verse 9, chapter 18. And he told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Notice what it says. They trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And then he says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, or like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, 
This man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humble, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. We see the Pharisee here. And the Pharisee, of course, represent those Jews who I said that they were, believed that they were guardians of the Old Testament. And uh, this Pharisee is praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Notice what he's doing. He's comparing himself with others. And he even looks down on the tax collector. And he's trying to earn, you see in this parable, he's trying to earn his way to heaven when he says, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. He's trying to earn heaven like many people try and do. Those who do not trust Christ as Savior and Lord, the only other option is to seek to earn your way to heaven. And that's what they're doing. Even though they have the Old Testament, the Old Testament has laid out what they should be doing. But look at the tax collector. Look how he responds. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Notice the tax collector recognized his sinful condition. He saw himself as a sinner before God, whereas the Pharisee, he did not see himself as a sinner. And when we come to Christ, that's the first thing we must recognize, that we are sinners before God, and we bring nothing to the table. We can do nothing to gain anything before God. Our righteousness is as filthy rags. And notice what Jesus says about it in verse 14. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself, which is what the Pharisee was doing, will be humble. But the one who humbles himself, like the tax collector, will be exalted. Jesus says this man went down to his house justified. So Jesus is uncovering the false religion of the scribes and Pharisees. And let's turn back to Matthew 7. And this is why Jesus began the, parable, I mean the uh, Sermon on the Mount with this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit are those who recognize their condition. They understand that they don't bring anything to the table. They understand that they're bankrupt. They don't have anything at all to bring before God. So what Jesus is doing first, he is characterizing those who have the righteousness that God uh, acts for, the righteousness that God provides. That is why he starts off with, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then in that, the fourth uh, beatitude, it says that they are the ones who also, guess what they do? They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They understand that they don't have it, and they hunger and thirst for righteousness. So what he's doing in the Sermon on, on the Mount in chapter 5 is he is characterizing those who have the righteousness that would enter heaven, the righteousness that God provides. And he goes on to say that uh, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. And then he, again, he says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And then he says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. So he goes on to characterize those who have the righteousness that, will, that God will allow in the, her- in the heaven. And this is the righteousness that God himself provides. So, and then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in verse 21 of chapter 5, and what I'm doing here is showing you what Jesus has already uh, talked about before he gets to verses 13 and 14. I believe we need to understand that first before we understand why he says, enter the narrow gate. In verses 21 through uh, 48 of chapter 5, what he does uh, there is he begins to show again where uh, their righteousness, the righteousness, with their righteousness, which was self-righteousness, which was a false righteousness. And he does this by um, a statement that talks about what, um, uh, what they've heard in the Old Testament or something similar to that. And then he corrects what they said. And here are six illustrations of that. First, he talks about uh, murder, what they believed about murder. He says, you have heard it says that uh, we should not commit murder. And that's true. But Jesus goes a little further than that and says, but I'm telling you, if you're angry with your brother without a cause, you've committed murder. Okay? So he's looking at the heart. The Pharisees, what they've uh, done was they have just dealt with the externals. They've not dealt with the heart. And that is what makes what they've done false. Also, what makes what they've done false also is that it's because it's not God's righteousness. God has to provide it. You can't earn this in any way. So, uh, being angry with your brother, he says, uh, that could send you to hell. And then he talks about, uh, 
He talks about adultery or sexual immorality, rather, lusting after a woman in your heart. He says if you do that, even though you have not committed the act, uh, guess what? You've already uh, committed adultery already in your heart. What he's looking at is the heart. He's looking at the heart. And only God can judge the heart. We can't judge the heart, but God can. He's the rightful judge of the heart. And so he shows them that if you lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And then he goes on further to say this, that if you divorce your wife for any reason other than sexual immorality, which includes adultery and any other kinds of sexual acts, he says, guess what? Uh, when she leaves you and go and marry somebody else, you call, she causes, uh, you have caused her to commit adultery, and the person who marries her commits adultery. And if you go and marry, you commit adultery, and you cause someone else to commit adultery too. So adultery is multiplied in that case. And then also he talks about uh, speaking the truth making oaths, swearing. What the Jews did was they conveniently, when they made an oath or swore, they conveniently left out God's name. They swore by his footstool, the temple. They conveniently left out his name so they could renege if they chose to on the oath. So again, it goes back to their heart. They were concerned with the externals and not the internals. And also, a fifth one is uh, they were seeking personal vengeance. The eye for the eye, the tooth for the tooth. Uh, when Jesus says, you have heard that it says, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. He says, but I'm telling you, you should not retaliate. And he goes on to list some things. Because what they were doing is they were seeking personal vengeance. The eye for the eye and the tooth for the tooth was actually for government authorities, those who uh, carried out judgments. And what they were doing was uh, they were taking personal vengeance. And Jesus was saying, that is not what you should be doing. And then the last one, uh, he deals with loving your brother. And he says, you have heard it says, uh, he says, you have heard it says, you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I'm telling you, uh, you should Love your, uh, not only, you should love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, they fail to keep loving your neighbor as yourself in this, uh, uh, in this. You shall, what they did was they added hate your enemy. Instead, they should have uh, 
They shouldn't have added, hate your enemy. So what they were doing was they added something, and then they left out something. Because in the Old Testament, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. And so they left that out. So they were wrong in that case also. And then in chapter 6, Jesus warned them about practicing their righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Because what they were doing was they were given, but they were given sounding a trumpet. And when they prayed, they prayed and they stood praying standing in the streets and on synagogues so they could be seen by men. And then when they fasted, they fasted by neglecting their appearance so that they would be noticed by men. Jesus warned them that they had their reward. So, and then lastly in chapter 7, when we get to chapter 7 here, He gets on them about judging. What they were doing was judging others, and they had a problem with their own selves. They didn't get the log out of their own eye before they could judge their brothers. And Jesus told them, you need to get the log out of your own eye before you can judge your brother. So now it kind of helps us to understand where we are in chapter 7, when he says, enter through the narrow gate. Again, this is a command. And from this point on, there's going to be only two choices. Two choices and two choices only. You have the narrow gate and the wide gate. You have the narrow way and the broad way. You have life and you have destruction. And you have the few and you have the many. And then he goes on to say there are two kinds of people who profess faith in Christ. There's the sincere and there's the false. And there are two kinds of builders the wise and the foolish. And there are um, two kinds of foundation, the rock and the sand. That is what he's going to do in the rest of the verses here. But enter through the narrow gate, he says. You're not going to accidentally fall into the narrow gate You're not going to stumble in it. You must enter the narrow gate. It's a command. And the narrow gate, you might be asking yourself, what is the narrow gate? The narrow gate is Jesus himself. He's the narrow gate. Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. And then he says in John chapter 10, he says, I'm the door. He says, if anyone enters through me, 
he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pastor. And then there are other passages where he says, where Peter says about uh, Christ in Acts chapter 4. Peter says, and there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then Paul says it in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2. He says that there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony to be given at the proper time. So Jesus is an arrow gate here. And then you even see that in the passages here in verse 21 of this chapter. Notice what he says. Not everyone who says to me, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. So he's identifying himself as the gate. He says, we'll enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven will enter And then he says, many will say to me, he says, on that day, Lord, Lord. And he goes on to say, so Jesus is the narrow gate that he's referring to here. So the gate is narrow. And the gate is narrow for some other reasons, too. The gate is narrow in this sense, that you enter the gate alone. You can't bring anybody with you. You can't just identify yourself with a church. Just coming to church doesn't get you in. Just serving in the church doesn't get you in to the gate. You have to enter, Jesus says. And I'm sure we've known people that have gone to church or been in church for a long time and have never put their faith in Christ. I'm sure we have plenty of people in churches today all over the place that have never come to faith in Christ. They've come to church because it's felt good to them. They leave and they feel good, but they've never made the commitment to Christ. So it's narrow in that sense that you have to come alone. But it's narrow in another sense, too. It's narrow in this sense, that you come with nothing. You come stripped. And what we're talking about here is self-denial. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 16, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, And follow me. So you have to deny yourself. And then he says this after that. He says, he who uh, wishes to save his life, he will lose it. But he who loses his life for my sake, he will find it. And that seems to be a difficult statement. But all he's saying there is, is that if you're willing to give up your way of life here, this earthly life, your physical life, uh, uh, your accomplishments, if you're willing to give that all up, 
you can gain eternal life. But if you're not willing to give that up, you won't. You lose. So he who wishes to save his life will lose it. Save his life in this world, his physical life. But if he loses this for Christ's sake, then he'll gain eternal life. So a person must deny themselves. Um, Jesus even says it even, even more strongly in Luke 13. You know what he says there? He says this. Strive to enter the narrow door. Luke chapter 13. He says strive to enter it. And the striving there, let's turn to it. Let's look at it. The striving there, the word behind strive, and I want to turn to it so we can look at it. Verse 24, the striving there, the word behind it, our word in English is agonize. The Greek word is agonizomai. And behind that, it has to do with an intense struggle. Uh, competing, a fight. In other words, the struggle is to deny yourself. Your desires, your goals, your dreams, that is difficult. And let me just say this before I go on. This is not your work. This is the Holy Spirit's work in you. When you come to that point, so I don't want you to think that you have to muster this up for yourself. This is God's work in you, bringing you to that point. But Jesus is calling that we strive. And in, in Matthew 13 here it says, they were asking him, Lord, are there a few that will be saved? In verse 23. And he doesn't even answer the question. He just says, strive to enter the narrow door. He says, for a minute I tell you, guess what? They will seek to enter and will not be able to. Not be able to. Denying ourselves is difficult. And he goes on to say, once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door, you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. He will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. What in the world is all of that about? Is about? See, we have a limited time, and God could shut the door on us at any time. Like he did with the, uh, when he told a parable in Luke chapter 12 about the man who uh, had a lot of goods, and uh, he was saving them up, and he wanted to build more barns so he can uh, put his goods in. But what Christ said in that parable is this, today your soul will be required of you. So we're living on borrowed time. We don't know when that day is going to be up. So Jesus, he didn't answer the question when they asked him about uh, whether, there, whether there would be few being saved. He just went on to say, strive to enter the narrow door. 
So, um, the, uh, the gate is narrow in that sense. It's narrow because you have to enter alone. It's narrow uh, uh, because you can't bring anything with you. Okay, you enter it with nothing. Like the rich young ruler. You know the story of the rich young ruler. What Jesus told him is this. He told him, he says, uh, one thing you still lack. Go and sell all you possess and uh, distribute it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. The rich young ruler, he left there very sad because it says that he was extremely rich. He could not deny himself and allow Christ to be Lord of his life. He could not turn lordship over to Christ. So the narrow gate is narrow in that sense. Self-denial. And then Jesus says in verse 14, there are few who find it. You even have to find the narrow way or the narrow gate. That means you need to be seeking. Why is it hard to find? It's hard to find because of verse 15. Beware of the false prophets. There are many voices out there. There's a lot of chaos, confusion. Many voices. And now on social media, that certainly has made it even worse. I remember, uh, this was years ago, when I worked downtown, and I was on my lunch break, and I went to the library, and uh, was excited about Christ, and wanted to proclaim Christ to anybody who was here. And I uh, was in the library and saw a gentleman, and uh, Start proclaiming the gospel to him. And he responded back. He had heard the gospel. He said he had accepted Christ. And uh, we kept talking about the word. And uh, he gave explanations of the word of God. But his explanations was always with some mystery meaning behind it. It's, he seems to add more to it. And uh, he actually walked me all the way back from work. I mean, I was going back to my job. And he walked me all the way back, talking to me about it, trying to convert me. What I later found out is that he was listening to this one guy. Okay, so he was trying to even convert me to this one guy, that he, this one teacher that he was sitting under. So uh, many false prophets in the world, many forms of false Christianity all over the place. So um, it's hard to find because of the many voices. There's chaos, confusion. 
So Jesus says, beware of the false prophet. But what about the wide gate? What about the wide gate? The wide gate. The point of the wide gate is this. It's simple. You can bring all your sin. You can bring all your self-righteousness. Like the religious leaders, you can bring all your self-achievement, your self-accomplishment, your self-will, your pride. You can bring all of that. And that is what the Jews did. They were entering the wide gate. And then in verses 13, you also see the broad way, two gates, two ways, the broad way. Verse 13, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. You have the broad way here. The broad way implies that there's plenty of room, like entering the wide gate, plenty of room. Truth is relative. There's your truth, and there's my truth. Um, there's no commitment. There is uh, no more character. Character. There's no spiritual growth. Um, there's no sacrifice. Enter, uh, enter the Broadway with all that you want to bring on it. So, but the narrow gate, or the narrow way rather, the narrow gate, the cost is high. Jesus said this too. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and his brothers and sisters and even his own life, the cost is high. Okay, in the narrow way. Uh, you might lose your, uh, your brothers and sisters, those who, uh, who you are close to. And we've heard that, especially in foreign countries, when people uh, trust Christ as their Savior, their parents disown them, their families disown them. So the cost is high in the narrow way. So when Jesus talks about... Uh, the way being narrow, and uh, the way uh, the, the gate is narrow and the way is narrow, this is what he's talking about. Uh, and you also may suffer persecution, too. The Bible teaches that um, those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And he, it also talks about, also, we know as believers God will discipline us when we get out of line, like a father does his son. Hebrews chapter 12. So the narrow way, uh, there's discipline for the believer. And, uh, so, and also, uh, when uh, a scribe came to Jesus and said to Jesus, said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus said to him, the foxes of the, uh, the birds of the air have nests, the foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. 
So Jesus is letting them know that it's going to be difficult. This way is difficult. The cost is high. So, uh, and then you have uh, where it leads, the destination, two different destinations. One leads to life, and the other leads to destruction. One leads to life, and the other leads to destruction. And this is the point. The gate is marked or points to heaven. Both gates point to heaven. But guess what? Only one takes you there. Both of the gates. We're talking about religion, religious people, people who uh, are nominal Christians, people who've been in church but have not come to faith in Christ. So... Only the narrow gate, the narrow way, leads to eternal life. And we're talking about quality of life there. We're talking about the life of God in the individual, uh, fullness of life, uh, unspeakable joy, fellowship with God, fellowship with other believers, fellowship with angels, all that God has for us. Life, heaven, all that it provides. So the narrow way leads to life. Opposite of the wide gate and the broad way, they lead to destruction. And when we're talking about destruction here, we're talking about everlasting judgment, everlasting punishment. Jesus puts it like this where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. And he says this, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So this is the wide gate, the broad way that leads to destruction. So, and he says this, there are also two groups the few and the many. We see them in the passage here. The few and the many. Like we saw in Luke chapter 13, uh, someone asked Jesus, are there a few that are going to be saved? He says there's few. Like the Bible says in Matthew chapter 22, uh, many are called, but few are chosen. It's the few. It's few that want to enter heaven on God's term. That's why there's few. It's not many that want to come through the, uh, the narrow way, the narrow gate that leads to life. See, the, the uh, wide gate and the broad way is appealing. It's attractive. You can bring all your garbage along, your sin, your self-righteousness. You can bring all that along. During the summertime, uh, 
there was this guy uh, I met in Myers Park. Uh, I go there on Saturdays sometimes and just watch the kids play soccer. And uh, I got out of my car, and uh, I got out of my car, and this guy was kicking the soccer ball and kicked it right up to me, and he was on the soccer field by himself. And uh, I just kind of threw it back to him and went on, did my uh, walk, and, and spent a little time there. And on my way, when I came back, uh, he was still there. And I went to my car, sat down, and uh, sat there for a moment, about to take off. And I saw him go to his car and uh, just was convicted to go and share the gospel with him. Because it was in his car, I had his trunk open. And so I went over and talked with him, uh, proclaimed the gospel to him. And uh, he had heard the gospel, but he had rejected it. He had uh, become a Buddhist. Somebody obviously had proclaimed the gospel to him, but he rejected it. I don't recall everything he said, but I recall, and we spent about 30 or 40 minutes talking. He was open to it. He explained Buddhism, and, uh, you know, I, I talked about the gospel, but he had rejected it. And like I said, uh, when I left there, the one thing that stood out for me was that he rejected the gospel because the gospel talked about hell, about people going to hell. He didn't believe uh, that God should send people to hell, so he rejected it based on that. Uh, he had heard it. He knew what it said, but he rejected it because the gospel, and I, I, in our conversation, I explained to him that whoever told you that, yeah, they told you right, that those who reject Christ, yeah, they're on their way to destruction. He could not accept that. So he rejected the gospel for that purpose. And he's one of the, the many. You have Buddhists, Hinduists, uh, Muslims, Roman Catholics, New Agers, uh, nominal Christians, those who only associate uh, with are only, only associated with Christ by name, they're all on in the wide gate, on the broad way, headed for destruction. There are many that are headed that way. And here's the amazing thing too, is that these people, uh, they're religious. They think they're going to heaven, but they're not. And that is what, in Jesus' statements in verses 22, look at what these people do. It says, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and in your name perform many miracles? Notice, they're working. They are associated with Christ. And then in Luke chapter 13, it says that 
They're going to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in your streets, and, and you taught in our streets. So notice, those people have some sort of affiliation with Christ. But guess what? He's going to say, I never knew you. Depart from me. So people were actually performing miracles, prophesying in his name. So they are associated with Christ, but they've never entered the gate. That is the problem. They've never, uh, uh, Christ's command, they've never accepted it. Enter the narrow gate. So this is what the sermon leads to. This is a choice that Christ commands us to. He says, enter through the narrow gate. The whole sermon from chapter 5 to this point is a command right here. This is the application of the sermon. So if you've been listening to it um, since Hans and others have been preaching it, starting from chapter 5, enter the narrow gate. I don't know who's out there that have never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, never repented of your sin, never uh, was willing to deny yourself, never willing to come to Christ on his own terms. We're talking about the divine versus human. Divine righteousness versus human righteousness. Enter the narrow gate. 